2014, I moved to Memphis, Tennessee in order to teach at Rhodes College. Moving to the Bluff City gave me the chance to connect for the first time with family on my mother's side. She was born in Portageville, Missouri, about 90 minutes northwest of Memphis, in the region where Tennessee, Arkansas, and Missouri triangulate. It was enlightening and affirming to see the place her and my grandmother spoke about so often throughout my childhood. Every time I met a new person in Portageville, my first thought was, their accent sounds exactly like grandma's. About two years later, in 2017, I drove in the opposite direction, southwest of Memphis, along the eastern border of Arkansas. Three hours after leaving the Bluff City, I arrived in McGehee, Arkansas, in order to visit the sites of the two easternmost Japanese internment camps, Rower and Jerome. In 1942, FDR issued Executive Order 9066, which led to the forced removal of 120,000 Japanese and Japanese Americans from their homes on the West Coast. They were given no trials, no due process, and no reason for their eviction other than sharing ancestry with the enemy who bombed Pearl Harbor. Members of my dad's family were relocated to the swamps of Arkansas in the early 1940s. My visit to McGehee was a homegoing in ways similar to my visit to Portageville. Both were trips to see where my family had come from, the soil that shaped its American experience, and the roots of our culture. Instead of laughing and breaking bread with newly met cousins, as I had done in Missouri, in McGehee I wept at the foot of memorials to the Japanese Americans who had been incarcerated there, the ancestors whose American story was shaped by imprisonment and prejudice. This is one of the strange aspects of being biracial, holding two distinct histories, and thus two distinct memories in the same body. The hardest part as a mixed white person is knowing that at any given time, past or present, one side of your family could be removed or imprisoned in ways people from the other side can't imagine. The questions I've asked myself over the years don't have easy answers. How do you balance the idea of America as a light to the world when events like Japanese internment are less random blips in your country's history and more like the standard used to keep white Christians at the top of the cultural hierarchy? How do you think of your homeland as a city upon a hill when it so often sets up the system to marginalize and incarcerate its non-white peoples or drags them outside the city gates altogether? In other words, how do you balance the promises of democracy with the realities of undemocratic policies, laws, and actions? Welcome to The Orange Wave, a history of the religious right since 1960, a series by straight white American Jesus and written and produced by me, Bradley Onishi. On the last episode, we pulled back the curtain on the shadow network of politicos, financiers, and media executives who have waged war on the federal government in order to win the country back for God. Now we turn our attention to the authoritarian leaders and regimes they are looking to as models for reconquering the country for straight, white, American-born Christians. In 1630, John Winthrop proclaimed that New England would be a city on a hill for all the world to emulate he was, of course, drawing on Matthew 5, where Jesus extols his followers to participate in the kingdom of God in a way that will make them a shining light to all people. The notion of the USA as a city on a hill resounds throughout our history. 
It has been called upon by the likes of John Kennedy and Ronald Reagan in times of war, hardship, and crisis in order to remind Americans that this great democratic experiment we are undertaking is not the easiest route, but it is the right one. That democracy is complicated and often painful, but worth it in order to live in freedom, peace, and equity. The biggest proponents of the city on a hill metaphor have always been religious leaders and politicians, two groups invested in forming an image of the American Republic as a light to the world, morally, civically, and religiously. But what if a group who believes it has a right to power over the American Republic suddenly began to lament America's supposed decline? What if they began to look to other places as the exemplars of morality and civic structure? What if their models were not high-functioning democracies or nations with stellar human rights records, but instead autocratic regimes without a free press or democratic processes or even freedom of religion? This is what has happened over the last two decades. Christian nationalists have lost their majority, and without the votes or the momentum on their side, they are looking to autocratic rulers for guidance on how to enforce their vision of the country on all American citizens. One night in 1964, Dana Rohrbacher was hiding in a tree, waiting for bandits to show up to the office below. His plan was to thwart their attack on the office and thus protect the campaign and the candidate that had ignited in him a youthful zeal for politics. As a student at Palos Verdes High School near Los Angeles, Rohrbacher became enthralled with Barry Goldwater after reading the Arizona Senator's The Conscience of a Conservative. While no vandals showed up that night, it became an emblematic tale of Rohrbacher's commitment to libertarianism in the Goldwater vein. Like many from the Arizona Senator's failed presidential run, Rohrbacher used the defeat as the basis of his political calling. He became assistant press secretary to President Ronald Reagan, helping to outline the Reagan doctrine and build out the Gipper's anti-communist policies and message. He eventually returned home to California and won election to the House of Representatives for a district in the northern coastal region of Orange County. Rohrbacher would spend the next 30 years representing Orange County in Congress. He had the quintessential profile for the district. A Goldwater alum and a Reagan administration official, he cut his teeth on staunch libertarian policies and vehement anti-communist rhetoric. Below his surfer dude persona and easygoing smile was a bulldog who wasn't afraid to represent the county's ultra-conservative constituents even when others considered him extremist. But then something strange happened. The man who had come up through the ranks warning the world of the threat of communism in the Soviet Union became the most pro-Russia member of either house of Congress. It began 30 years ago when he hosted the then vice mayor of St. Petersburg, Vladimir Putin in Washington, DC. They played a game of touch football and then drunkenly arm wrestled to decide who won the Cold War. From the early 2000s forward, Robacher transformed into what many have dubbed Putin's favorite congressman. Over the years, he's compared Putin to Gorbachev and said Reagan would want the United States to establish good working relationships with Putin's Russia. He tried to derail the Magnitsky Act, which prohibits certain Russian oligarchs from entering the U.S. and freezes their ability to bank here. He also compared Russia's military invasion of Crimea to the Revolutionary War. The most peculiar part of the story is how the man who was once so devoted to libertarian ideals 
that he hid in a tree to protect the Goldwater campaign from vandals, became the most vocal congressional advocate of Vladimir Putin, a leader who uses his autocratic powers in the least libertarian ways possible, restricting immigration, limiting free speech and the free press, controlling Russia's economy through a network of oligarchs with state business interests, and teaming up with the state church to wage violence against members of the LGBTQ community. Rohrbacher's pro-Russian platform became so pronounced that in 2016, then House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy said in a private meeting with Paul Ryan and a few others that he thinks Putin pays two people, Donald Trump and Dana Rohrbacher. While it's impossible to conclude decisively why Rohrbacher went from an anti-Soviet crusader to a pro-Putin stalwart, one hint might be in what he told the Washington Post about his infamous wrestling match with Putin. He's a little guy, but boy, I tell you, he put me down in a millisecond. He is tough. His muscles are just unbelievable. He's a tough guy, and he's supposed to be a tough guy. That's what the Russian people want. It may be what some Americans want, too. Rohrbacher became a close Trump ally when the 2016 campaign began. He was on the shortlist for Secretary of State, but ultimately passed over for Rex Tillerson. Like Rohrbacher, Trump has repeatedly defended Putin's actions and refused to acknowledge the extent of Russian interference in the 2016 election. Trump has also replicated some of Putin's authoritarian tactics in his approaches to immigration and human rights. In the opening to his presidential campaign, President Trump uttered what are now infamous words about Mexican people. I want to warn you, the following clips may be triggering. They're sending people that have lots of problems and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. On January 27, 2017, just weeks into his presidency, Trump signed an executive order that banned foreign nationals from seven predominantly Muslim countries from visiting the country for 90 days. He suspended entry to the country of all Syrian refugees indefinitely and prohibited any other refugees from coming into the country for 120 days. I think Islam hates us. There's something, there's something there that there's a tremendous hatred there. There's a tremendous hatred. We have to get to the bottom of it. He then shocked the nation by claiming that there were good people on both sides after violence erupted between white supremacists, including neo-Nazis, and counter-demonstrators at a rally in Charlottesville. I think there's blame on both sides. You look at, you look at both sides. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. And, 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 and if you reported it accurately, you would say it. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. In May of 2020, Trump's former head of national security, John Bolton, released a memoir. In one episode, he chronicles Trump's response to President Xi's explanation as to why the Chinese leader needs to build concentration camps for Muslims. According to Bolton, Trump said that building the camps was, quote, exactly the right thing to do. These actions and events have caused many to conclude that Trump is an aspirational authoritarian who will not hesitate to limit civil rights and violate the law in order to inflict his will on the American people. Here's how Stephen Tankel, associate professor in the School of International Service at American University, summed up Trump's actions during the June 2020 uprisings in response to the killing of George Floyd. We may look back at his response to the current civil unrest as the moment when his longtime flirtation with authoritarianism hardened into something more sinister. 
On Monday morning, in a call with governors, Trump, who one participant later described as sounding unhinged, called protesters terrorists, suggested they should be locked up for at least a decade to silence them, encouraged the use of force against American citizens, and promised to unleash the military if local law enforcement wasn't up to the job. Later, in short remarks delivered from the Rose Garden, he doubled down. After briefly name-checking peaceful protesters, Trump alleged falsely that the nation was in the grip of organizers of terror, professional anarchists, violent mobs, arsonists, looters, criminals, rioters, Antifa, and others who deserved lengthy prison sentences. He promised to dispatch the U.S. military if governors did not deploy the National Guard in their states. In Washington, D.C., where Trump does not have to wait for a governor to act, he deployed thousands of heavily armed military personnel. To cap off his militarized reaction to both peaceful protests and acts of civil disobedience, Trump said he put chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, quote, in charge of the administration's response. For many Americans, these authoritarian tendencies are distressing, to say the least. Some have gone so far as to wonder if American democracy will survive the Trump presidency. However, not all Americans disapprove of these tactics. In fact, many white nationalists and white Christians see Trump's demolishment of democratic norms and institutions as the only path forward to maintaining their place in American society. As Rohrbacher said, Putin is a tough guy. He doesn't abide by democratic institutions and processes. He acts with absolute authority and threatens those who challenge him with physical violence. For some, on both the alt-right and the Christian right, these strongman tactics have become attractive. For groups who have lost their majority but want to maintain control, democracy is not the ideal form of governance. Installing an authoritarian who will act on their behalf and against the will of the people is their best hope of retaining power. On our last episode, we outlined how the shadow network overseen by the Council for National Policy and constituted by organizations such as the NRA and the Family Research Council, along with media empires and voter mobilization campaigns, have been waging war on the federal government and American culture for over half a century. Their mission is to retake the country and reinstitute a white patriarchal Christian society. The goal is not democracy or dialogue. The goal is domination. And so, it's not all that shocking that some on the religious right are now looking to authoritarian regimes as the models for retaking America for God and for themselves. Here's how the journalist Sarah Posner put it in 2019. Indeed, many in the U.S. Christian right believe America has failed as a role model for the rest of the world, that liberalism, unrestrained, has brought a once great nation to its knees. To them, the illiberal autocrats across the Atlantic are fast becoming the new standard bearers in a global battle for traditional values, an antidote to what they see as rising decadence and moral relativism in the West. Such discontent with America's sway marks a sea change for a movement with roots in opposing communism, long seen as an authoritarian ideology that crushed religious freedom. Indeed, many no longer see the U.S. as uniquely positioned to champion biblical values. So, as the global political power centers shift toward rising authoritarianism, 
away from American-style liberal democracy, significant players on the Christian right are gravitating to where the power is. We shouldn't overlook the fact that the other groups looking to Russia and Eastern Europe as models for transforming the United States are the white supremacists who make up what is referred to as the alt-right. Richard Spencer and other alt-right leaders have praised Putin's Russia as a white country where religious, ethnic, and racial minorities are not allowed a central place in culture or government, if at all. I spoke about this with Sarah Posner. She's an investigative journalist, author, and expert on the intersection of religion and politics. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, including The American Prospect, The Nation, Salon, The Atlantic, The Daily Beast, The Washington Post, and Religion Dispatches. She is also the author of the new book, Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump. Sarah helped me understand how these two factions, the alt-right and the religious right, have formed an unlikely alliance in and through the Trump presidency. But really, at the heart of it, for both camps, there's a sense of an America that has been lost to liberalism and political correctness. But what it really is, is, is in their view, an America that's been lost to liberal democracy, right? So like a democracy that is not just based on, oh, you know, you go to the voting booth every four years or every two years, but it's a democracy of, you know, we have a free press and we have an independent judiciary. And they, and, and we believe in human rights and diversity and pluralism. And both these camps share an antipathy towards that because it erodes their vision of some mythological past where white people or Christians or white Christians um, basically had, had, had control over the culture or of American culture. And so they don't, they don't want to see a diminishment of that. If you recall the history we traced in episode two, from the gold rush to the Tea Party, we explored how opposition to civil rights, redlining, and school segregation have been at the core of the modern religious right. Randall Balmer, Ann Nelson, and Gerardo Marty have all discussed on this series how the formation of the religious right was founded on protecting segregation academies and other racist institutions. In this sense, it is easy to understand how the religious right could form a pact with the white supremacists of the alt-right and look to Russia and other Eastern European countries as paragons of how society should be racially ordered with whites at the top and everyone else in their proper place below them. What is more surprising is how quickly the religious right has flipped its position on Russia. As we explored in the first three episodes of this series, one of the reasons that evangelicalism flourished in places such as Orange County was through the vehement anti-communist social movements like the John Birch Society. There was even a school of anti-communism headquartered in Orange County in the early 1960s. Yet, as Sarah Posner outlines, all it took for the religious right to shift its stance on Russia was for the former Soviet Union to transition to an autocratic regime led by one strongman. Alan Carlson, the former director of the Family in America Studies Center, the founder and longtime international secretary of the World Congress of Families, which are both evangelical institutions founded to uphold and spread quote-unquote family values, said this in 2018. There are great experiments in post-liberal political and economic life occurring right now in real places, in Poland's Law and Justice Party, in the Hungary of Prime Minister Viktor Orban, and yes, in the land of the great Russians led by Vladimir Putin. 
If this isn't enough, Paul Weyrich, the godfather of the religious right himself, began taking regular trips to Russia in the 1990s. There he trained activists and saw in Russia a chance to re-raise Christendom and form an ally with the religious right in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about what Paul Weyrich is doing in Russia and how he sort of helped to lay this groundwork and, uh, and, and to make uh, possible these, these connections between, uh, between Putin and, um, and the religious right? So, so Weyrich, who died in 2008, so he, he was one of the main architects of the Christian right and also of the new right that I talk about in the book, you know, what was called the new right at the time in the 1970s. And, you know, he was obviously very anti-communist along with, with the rest of the American right. But then as it became evident that that communism was, was going to fall and he became very interested in what was going to take its place and was interested in promoting he painted it as promoting like an American concept of capitalism and freedom and free, free enterprise. But he was also very interested in Russia's Christian past and Christian heritage. You know, Weyrich was a very conservative Catholic who, for whom the Catholic church became too liberal after Vatican II. And he afterwards joined an Eastern rights um, church that was that kind of Eastern Orthodoxy was more appealing to him than the, than the liberalized Catholic Church and Roman Catholic Church in America. Um, and so he, um, you know, and, and also in, in Putin, the early days of Putin, kind of, you know, admired him and thought it was okay for, for a strong leader to dispense with some of the uh, procedures and protocols of democracy <laughs> in the service of advancing that kind of ideal of a Christian nation. You know, this was not something that was really on the radar of many like rank and file Christian right activists until the Trump era. Sure, like there were, were um, and I guess you'll want to talk about the World Congress of Families too, like that was a Christian right organization that early on became interested in uh, in pursuing and following um, far right, the ascending far right in Eastern Europe before it became cool. <laughs> it, I think that because there were activists, not just like Weyrich, but others who began to look eastward like that, um, it kind of laid the groundwork for a comfort level uh, in the Christian right with Trump embracing Putin. One of the things I've noticed in your work is that uh, there are some themes that, that seem to explain why uh, Putin's Russia would be attractive to someone like Paul Weyrich and also Alan Carlson and the, and the World Congress of Families. And that seems to be that Russia is in many ways one of the whitest places on earth. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a white country that is in, under Putin's regime, not friendly to, um, to uh, many outsiders, especially coming from Muslim-majority countries and other places. It has a Christian past rooted in a very patriarchal Christian tradition uh, and a very hierarchical Christian tradition that in many ways matches up with a kind of authoritarian politics that does not uh, wait for or depend on democratic uh, mechanisms to make decisions about policy or governance. And so uh, in many ways, if you put those pieces together, it makes sense, even though it's kind of counterintuitive that someone like Paul Weyrich, an, an architect of the religious right, would look east to Russia. Uh, as you said, he died in 2008, but other organizations and other leaders have sort of stepped in to fill the vacuum here. So one of those, as you've mentioned, is, 
the World Congress of Families. Would you mind talking about uh, the, what work they do and, and, how, and, and what's happening there in terms of uh, Russia and Eastern Europe? So the World Congress of Families is a project of an organization, a nonprofit in the United States that's called the, now called the International Organization for the Family. And it's run by Brian Brown, who an activist who also grew up in Orange County, um, as he described to me, a, a rock-ribbed anti-communist. And they host these sort of semi-annual conferences all over the world that are based on the idea that because of all of this social change, such as abortion and availability of contraception, and equal rights for women and LGBTQ people, that there's this demographic crisis in white Christian countries. Now they're, that, they're not that explicit about it being a demographic crisis in white Christian countries, but if you follow them long enough, you'll see that that's clearly what the, what the concern is. Um, and they've had these conferences all over the world, but in recent years, they've had them in coordination with far-right leaders in places like Italy, Hungary, Moldova, Russia. And so they're, in recent years, they've looked, as, as there's been this ascendance of, of far-right autocrats across Europe, they've begun to look and partner, look at and partner with um, these autocratic leaders who they actually get to co officially co-host the conference, right? So like, it's not just that they're ha they had a conference in Budapest, it's that Orban helped sponsor it. Or, um, you know, in Italy, they had a conference in Verona and, you know, Matteo Salvini co-sponsored it or co-hosted it. Um, the one that I covered was in Moldova, which was um, co-hosted by the then president of Moldova, who was a Putin ally, um, Igor Dodon. They, and they're pretty unabashed about the fact that they're in bed with these autocrats, but they view it as, or they rationalize it as, you know, if you're concerned about things like a free press and an independent judiciary and fair elections and things like that, those are just kind of like procedural things. The main thing that we should be concerned about is that these leaders are dedicated to their country's Christian heritage. They're trying to push back against what the World Congress of Families calls um, gender ideology, which is basically LGBT rights, but what they try to portray as like a George Soros funded conspiracy to impose this, what they call gender ideology on, on unsuspecting Christians or unsuspecting anybody. So they've made a kind of seamless transition from being anti-communist to supporting these autocrats. And it seems that the a, a reasonable conclusion to draw would be that they don't like totalitarianism when it's left-wing totalitarianism, but they're okay with it coming from the right. The rhetoric about patriarchy and family coming from the World Congress of Families, Alan Carlson, and before him, Paul Weyrich, has transcended the niche enclaves of evangelical family organizations. Here's a clip from Tucker Carlson on Fox News. He explains that Hungary's birth rate is falling and that, quote unquote, neoliberals propose a solution of allowing refugees to replace all Hungarians. He says this is the George Soros solution. Orban has decided to affirmatively help Hungarian families grow. Orban 
Taiwan's government is giving young women $35,000 low-interest loans when they get married for the first time. If these women have three children with their husbands, the loans are forgiven completely. If they have a fourth child, they're exempt from income taxes for the rest of their lives. Everything about these policies is a good idea. They don't just help people have the children they want to have. They encourage the creation of healthy families. The Hungarian government wants to help people get married, stay married to the same person, and remain close to their extended families. It gives the biggest rewards to middle-class families, the very group struggling most to balance career, finances, and children in the modern age. In other words, Hungary's leaders actually care about making sure their own people thrive. Instead of promising the nation's wealth to every illegal immigrant from the third world, they're using tax dollars to uplift their own people. Imagine that. One of the things that we've talked about on our show uh, quite a bit is that when evangelicals seemed to have the majority, when the religious right seemed to have the majority, when they were calling themselves the moral majority, they were very much for democracy and telling people that they needed to listen to the will of the people. So if you're a politician and you're supporting, for example, gay marriage, well, the majority of the folks don't want that. So you need to listen to the people. Now, it seems as if they're very much in the minority on issues like gay marriage or transgender rights. And so it's, well, who needs democracy anyway? The authoritarian regimes of, uh, of the East, uh, of Russia and Eastern Europe are actually really attractive and they're the people we should look to to sort of emulate. Does that make sense to you? Is that, does that seem like what you see or what can, well, what, what I am think, I missing? I think that the Christian right very much likes to make use of the mechanisms of democracy when it works. I mean, they, they have, you know, used voter mobilization to their great advantage. They have used, um, you know, cultivating and recruiting candidates for local office and grooming them for higher office very much to their advantage. And that's what we do in a democracy, right? Like people go out and vote and you encourage people to go out and vote. And the more people who vote, the better and all of that, right? But the, it's not the, the sort of like pulling the lever part of democracy that I'm concerned with here as much as the ideological underpinnings of a liberal democracy in the sort of like second half of the 20th century America, right? Where you had like a growing international order that was centered on human rights and preventing another World War II, another genocide. And then you had rapid social change in the United States where you had Brown v. Board of Education, then you had democratization in the Supreme. So that was like, that was a, a way of promoting human rights, promoting civil rights and democratization. Then you have the Supreme Court um, striking down mandatory school prayer, public school prayer and Bible reading seen as a way of like making public schools not sectarian so that, you know, you have a, a pluralistic society so you don't force one sectarian religious view on public school children and then the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so you see this building of a broadening of human rights and civil rights for all Americans, which is seen as a threat by the Christian right. They, they saw Brown v. Board as a threat. They saw the, the school prayer and Bible readings decisions as a threat. And so all of that kind of accumulates into the, oh, judicial activism, judicial activists on the Supreme Court are imposing their liberal views on the rest of us. And it means it spells the end of um, 
you know, religious freedom for Christians. Like these are arguments that you heard in the 60s and you hear them again with gay rights. You hear them now with the pandemic and stay at home orders, right? All of this is chalked up to like liberal political correctness and uh, infringing on the rights of Christians. To the extent that Putin, for example, has cracked down on LGBTQ rights. This is something that they're able, something concrete that they're able to latch onto. And it doesn't really matter, you know, whether, you know, like the political corruption or the economic corruption that goes on in Russia, because they've latched onto this thing that they claim has been, you know, he's, he's willing to be strong on that. Whereas in America, politicians were weak on it and they sort of like went along with all of this gay rights stuff. Now you have Trump who's like willing to do their bidding, but it's, you know, at the cost of, of, of our democracy. Well, fine, that's okay because we want to get rid of that. I think there are two conclusions we can draw at this point in our analysis. First, on the last episode, we traced how the religious right grew through networks constituted by big donors, financiers, media moguls, and voter mobilization initiatives. We saw how the mission was to take America back for God. The goal was domination, not conversation. And so, in some sense, the religious rights looking to Putin's Russia, Orban's Hungary, and other autocratic regimes as models for how to return America to the social and political order they envision as proper to this country is not at all that surprising. Second, one of the things that the Trump presidency has brought into clear focus is that the history of the alt-right and the history of the religious right are not separate. They are intertwined and entangled at many points. Here's Sarah Posner talking about the connections between the two and how they've worked together over the course of the last three years. To the extent that people were sort of surprised by the rise of Trump and how could somebody who so um, intensely appealed to white supremacists and simultaneously to supposed Christians win the presidency and hang on to the presidency, like isn't that isn't that shocking and new? And I think some of the historical research that I did for the book of these new right figures, it was called the new right in the 70s and 80s, shows just how much a lot of this white supremacist ideology was already sort of like baked into um, the American conservative movement and just kind of like whack a mold out of the way when it became inconvenient. Um, and then there was no more whack a mole when Trump came along, in part because he was viewed as this messiah figure to um, to the Christian right, and he kind of like in, that enabled him to pull all of this together in a way that other uh, other Republican candidates weren't. I think because they were so focused on appealing to the Christians' right, religious and you know gender related issues, that they didn't really as much focus on the other stuff, but like Trump kind of brought this all together. And I'll say too, that, you know, someone who recognized the electoral power of that alignment was Steve Bannon, who told me before he became Trump's, he, before he joined Trump's campaign officially, who told me that there was no way that the alt-right could win any election without the Christian right coming along. So they knew that that was necessary and they somehow met, managed to find the formula that made it work. As we have done throughout this series, we can look to Orange County as a helpful, if surprising, prism for understanding the history of the religious right and its constitutive concerns. 
I want to return to Dana Rohrabacher. In 2017, he endorsed a known Holocaust denier and anti-Semitic person, Chuck Johnson. He then went on to fundraise for Gracie Loera Vandermark, a candidate for school board in Huntington Beach. As Mother Jones reports, Vandermark was known to associate with white nationalists and white supremacists. She's been accused of being anti-Semitic and a peddler of racist conspiracies. In February of 2018, Rohrbacher was interviewed by Voice of America. When asked if he had a message for the Chinese people who were celebrating the Chinese New Year at the time, he began by discussing the harmful stereotype of Chinese people eating dog and explaining that he was okay with that because Americans eat small animals as well. While the rant was strange, it revealed Rohrbacher's willingness to delve into harmful and unwarranted racial stereotypes. Finally, in 2018, Rohrbacher said that it was okay for homeowners not to sell their homes to lesbian or gay people if they did not agree, quote, with their lifestyle. I wanted to ask you real quick about somebody that uh, as I, comes from my backyard, and that's Dana Rohrbacher, and, and might just be uh, a kind of both an exemplar for this uh, movement, but also a kind of victim of what the religious right would take to be this pluralism that they see as, uh, as their enemy. I mean, he was just voted out in uh -huh. what is being touted as a blue wave in Orange County. And that is due in, in, in large part to people of color, uh, Asian Americans and others voting in mass in Orange County and really sort of changing the demographics there. But Dana Rohrabacher may have been when he was in office up until just a, a short time ago, the closest member of Congress to Russia and Putin. Can you and talk about long, him? And for a long time, right? Um, you know, dating back to the days when Wyrick was trying to build these uh, more intense relationships between the United States and Russia in the immediate aftermath of, of the fall of communism. And Rohrabacher was kind of front and center in a lot of that and talking about, you know, very early on talking about how, you know, great Putin was and how we could be, you know, America could be really good friends with post-communist Russia. Um, and I think it's like sort of, I think that, you know, in the Trump era, uh, Rohrabacher, there were a lot of stories written about Rohrabacher's um, close ties with Putin. Um, uh, and he got a lot of attention and negative attention for that. Um, and I think it was underappreciated how much he kind of like also played to the to the religious right, maybe not in the same way that somebody like uh, Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio would, um, but in a more sort of like understand, like a bit, in a very Southern California way, like he was a surfer dude, but a Christian, you know. <laughs> well, he, he, he really did have it down in the, I'm the laid back surfer guy, but if you yeah. dig into what I'm doing, I'm really pretty uh, cozy with not only authoritarian regimes, but mm -hmm. incredibly far right uh, religious actors and communities. Right. You know, in a lot of ways, he was a forerunner. A human rights activist that I interviewed for the book told me that, you know, he was pro, Rohrbacher was pro-Putin before being pro-Putin was cool. In many ways, Rohrbacher is just one more chapter in the history of the religious right we've traced through Orange County. Rohrbacher was part of the Goldwater campaign. As we've mentioned, the Goldwater campaign was birthed and grew in the Southland. Orange Countyans loved Goldwater's libertarianism, but they also loved his opposition to civil rights. As we learned on the last episode, Jerry Falwell joined his army of clergy with Paul Weyrich's Council for National Policy to form the religious right in order to avoid taxation of segregation academies. If we fast forward to the election of Barack Obama, the first African-American president, 
we witnessed the development of the Tea Party, which marketed itself as a social movement intended to return the Republican Party to its grassroots. However, as we explored with Gerardo Marti, the Tea Party was marked by xenophobia and racism. It was a center of the birth of conspiracy, claims that Barack Obama was not born in this country, and that thus he was not eligible to be president. Rohrbacher's intimacy with Putin is just the, another chapter in this history. He liked Putin the tough guy, the one who didn't have to abide by democratic norms. He also seems to like the fact that in Russia, white people are at the center of government and culture with no need to respect the rights of immigrants, refugees, or members of the LGBT community. Overall, the example of Dana Rohrbacher helps us understand the entangled history of the alt-right and the religious right, a history that has come to a crescendo in the Trump presidency and Trump's admiration for autocratic rulers such as Putin, Orban, and others. However, viewed through the lens of the history we've traced here and viewed through the long lens of American history from the viewpoint of indigenous people, people of color, and African-Americans, Trump's presidency is not so much the creation of something new as much a revelation of aspects long-standing in American culture and history. When I think back to my visit to the two easternmost Japanese internment sites in McGehee, Arkansas, it opens the pathway for taking in the stunning history of violence and marginalization leveled against religious, racial, and ethnic minorities in this country. From the genocide of indigenous peoples, to the stealing of Hawaiian lands, the centuries-long institution of slavery, the strange career of Jim Crow, redlining, the Chinese Exclusion Act, and on and on and on and on. When I think through this history, it's clear that the Trump presidency and his allyship with the alt-right and the religious right is not something new. However, that's not to say that there isn't something particularly terrifying about this cultural moment. As we've examined on this episode, white Christians are now looking to autocratic regimes across the world as the city upon a hill that America used to be. Gone is the rhetoric of the United States as the model for civic, political, and cultural life. Instead, white Christians and President Donald Trump now see Viktor Orban, Vladimir Putin, and others as the leaders of nations that are properly ordered with Christians at the top of the hierarchy. In other words, what is particularly terrifying about this moment is their willingness to openly admit that they prefer an autocratic regime that favors them rather than a democratic process that favors all. On the next episode, we'll examine the models of masculinity that play into evangelicals and others on the religious right seduction by strong men like Trump, Putin, and Orban. Part of the process of flipping the religious right's attitude toward Russia was a patriarchal theology that holds up a cowboy masculinity as the model for being a real man. My name's Brad Onishi. Thanks for listening to Straight White American Jesus. This is the Orange Wave, a history of the religious right since 1960. Next week, we'll be holding our special mid-series Q&A session. I'll be live answering questions about the themes, histories, and books we've covered on this series so far. Look for details on Twitter and on our Facebook page. If you can, go over to straightwhiteamericanjesus.podomatic.com and sign up for our Patreon, where I'm posting the full interviews with the scholars and journalists who appear on every episode. 
You can find me on Twitter at Bradley Onishi. You can find the show at Straight White JC. And if you can, go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. Thanks for listening. Until next time.